are you an innovative business? I mean, not as a marketing line, but as a culture of consistently creating amazing ideas. Well, in this episode of The Remarkable Project, I am honored to speak with Carla Johnson, one of the world's leading innovation architects and author of the new book, Rethink Innovation. Carla helps leaders paralyzed by traditional thinking and teams that lack purpose and progress. She has spent 20 years helping business leaders shatter limits and discover undiscovered possibilities. Through years of research, she's developed a framework that we'll talk about today and a process that teach people how to consistently produce inspired ideas that lead to uncommon outcomes. This was such a cool conversation. In, in, in the conversation, we, we cover off some of the biggest misconceptions about how successful ideas are born, that it's not about waking up in the middle of the night randomly with a brand new idea, that there's a whole process that sits behind that. We talk about the building blocks and process for true innovative thinking. And lastly, and, and I, I think probably my favorite part of this conversation is talking about the power of putting observation practices, behaviors into your daily business schedule. I have to say that in this conversation, Carla showed up with illustrative stories and practical advice on some of those behaviors you need to integrate into your, t- into your daily life to create amazing new ideas and generally adopt a framework of change within your business. Anyway, here she is, the change maker with the key to your next big idea, Carla Johnson. Why do people love your business? What are the unforgettable moments you create for your audience? How do you build a business that people feel compelled to talk about? The Remarkable Project with Jay Tinkler. Carla, welcome to The Remarkable Project. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I appreciate you inviting me to join you. I'm super looking forward to this. You and I have had a couple of conversations prior to this one, and I, I feel a philosophy synergy in the um, the stuff that we love to play in. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. You and I were introduced to each other via Brian Kramer, who I'm a massive fan of. I also have a lot of synergies with the way in which he thinks as well. And I knew that anyone that he would introduce me to would be amazing. And he was right in this case. As I dived into your work, one of the things that really stood out to me was just how prolific you are as far as a writer and a speaker and just your commitment to sort of getting sort of new ideas out into the market, new ways of thinking. And I guess that's what this conversation is all about. Before we dive in, though, I I usually would ask a background question here, Carla, sort of, you know, tell us your history and all of that kind of stuff. But just knowing the way you think, I, I thought a really interesting way to start this conversation is to ask, whether there has been one or two sort of aha moments throughout your career that have changed the way you think and I guess made it more important for you to share your work in such a, uh, such a large way? 
There have been, and actually there's been two of them, but before I dive into that, I want to say that Brian Kramer is absolutely one of my favorite people in the world (laughs) and uh, just smart and humble. And I have learned so much from him and his mentorship over the years. So I just feel so lucky to be in that halo of Kramerdom, if that's what you call it, (laughs) Brian Kramerdom. (laughs) Um, But I think as I look back on all that I've learned from so many different people in many, many different industries, I would say that there are two that really start to stand out. And the first is when I was early in my career, I started out doing, they call it business development in the architecture world, not sales, business development for an architecture company in Omaha, Nebraska, middle America, if you're looking at it geographically. And I remember going with one of the design architects out to a site where they were talking to the client about designing the space. And I was just mesmerized as he could walk across this blank site, this blank piece of land and create this incredible vision of what would be here down to how it would feel as you walked through what would become room by room and foyers and things like that. And I remember asking him later, do you imagine these buildings in their entirety when they're all done? Like what they look like and design and structure and finishings and things like that. And he said, no, actually what I imagine is how do I feel when I walk through each area of the space? And I think that was that was just incredible for me to learn and hear and really experience so early in my career. And that was something that has always stayed with me as as a marketer and a business person is to first think, how do I want to make people feel? And then just like that architect, how do I reverse engineer what I create in order to make that feeling happen? In the people I'm trying to connect with. So I think that that was the biggest and that's, that was the first and that was definitely the biggest. And then I think moving it even more into yours and my world is in uh, 2013, 14, 15, um, I was working with Robert Rose and we were co-writing the book Experiences, the seventh era of marketing and looking at how brands took content to create story-driven experiences and really what that looked like. And understanding that what that architect had taught me so many years before was now at least into in a small degree was what brands were trying to do. So I, the one that really stuck with me was the Nike app. And it wasn't just about buy my shoes and clothes and you know everything else. It was about, let's help you make, let's help you become an athlete. And what does it feel like to become an athlete? And what do workouts look like to become an athlete? And then they reverse engineered it into the products. So it was the same thing, but it was the first time I had seen it outside of that architecture and design space in such a tangible way. So those, those were my two really big aha moments that have shaped how I think and what I still do today. I love, I love that feel piece is sort of uh, probably you probably had the feeling at a, a at a greater extent, but I felt what you were saying there was like, oh wow, that's a I so get that idea of just what does it feel like to walk in and and it's a very outward kind of way of looking at things too, right? It's forcing yourself to actually go, what's the emotion? What's the uh, the way in which 
that translates for an, another person rather than necessarily just me. Absolutely. And, and I think as marketers, we tend to think that's what we do, but I don't think we understand in many cases what it actually looks like and feels like to do it to the degree our audiences are really hungry to have us do it. Mm. All right. So your new book, Rethink Innovation, explores the patterns and methods and behaviors in which impactful companies can successfully come up with successful ideas, I guess, consistently. Is that a good way of explaining the, what you're sort of covering off in the book? Yeah, absolutely. In, in looking at if these companies and people, the people who come up with the ideas, are successful over long periods of time, and it has to do with a consistent behavior. Yeah. So what is, that, what is that behavior? Okay. So I'm curious, going back to when you, and I, um, it's, I know it's been a, a little while since um, the book launched, but going back to when you were pulling this book together, I, I wonder whether you can take us back to the real problem that you were witnessing that sort of created the catalyst for writing the book. And I guess as a double barrel, which is always the worst type of question, um, who were you writing this book for? I I can go back to the day almost exactly. Of, of what, I mean, I couldn't tell you on a calendar, but I can tell you the experience because of the feeling that I had. And I had, um, it was after Robert Rose and I wrote the book Experiences, The Seventh Era of Marketing, that I was speaking at an event and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, like, I, I love the process and I understand how it works. But what I really struggle with is like coming up with an idea that's really unique and I'm not an idea person. And she said, I, I could never produce the kind of ideas that I see other people doing. Our brand could never do what I see other brands doing. And it was, it was like she was fighting to confirm that she's not creative. She's not innovative. She's just not that kind of person. Like she was telling herself as much as me that she's not this kind of person and almost in a way relinquishing her career to something less than I think she really hoped it could be. Because I believe that we all feel better when we wake up every day, believing we have ideas that are important and fruitful and impactful and we can bring them to the work that we do every day and i mean i know i i get super excited thinking that's what's going to happen with my day every single day and and i think in that instant she was a person who assumed i can't make an impact i can execute things that other people come up with but i can't make an impact and and so that sent me down a rabbit hole to say, okay, she she believes she's in this one type of camp of I can't do this and I'm not this kind of person. Yet I see other people who not necessarily because of title or experience or education are prolific idea generation people and those ideas are wildly successful over and over again. So, so what's the disconnect? So I, the first question I sought to answer is where do people get inspiration for their ideas? And is that something that the rest of us can learn and teach and share and nurture in each other? And it turns out after I spent five years researching this book and research interviews, digging into the habits of people, where these amazing ideas came, came from. 
And it turned out that they all followed the same process, whether they realized it or not. And in many cases, I would do probably what you would do, Jay, when you started to interview people like, where did that idea come from? You know, that kind of seems like the common sense things. And I would say 90% of the people would look at me and say, I don't know, it just came to me, you know, which, you know, I, if you don't understand the process, that seems like where ideas come from in a shower, on a run, when we're doing something completely unrelated. But then I would ask them um, back to architects and reverse engineering things, I would say, well, what were you doing right before that? Like, were you in a meeting with your agency or your team or, you know, what were you doing and what were you doing before that? And what were you doing before that? And, and so forth. And I could go back to that initial little piece of inspiration that sparked the whole journey that turned into the idea <clears throat> that led to such an important outcome. And when I think of that, as far as your second part of the question, who is the book for? It's really for anybody who wants to improve their performance, their ability to be prolific with quality and successful ideas. And that doesn't matter if you're a CEO of a Fortune 50 company or a frontline manager or, you know, in a smaller company or a solo business owner. Everybody needs ideas because you look at how fast our world is changing, customers' preferences are changing. We all talk about needing that idea for that experience that makes us stand out and differentiate ourselves. All of that is driven by ideas. Mm, wow. There's I, something that comes to mind as you're talking through that, and it, and it is that as marketers, I think that we often consider ourselves the, the feelers uh, you know, if there's thinkers and there's feelers and you talk about architects or engineers and they're all the doers and the thinkers, the ones that can put everything in a, um, a logical pattern and that kind of thing. And, it, and I think traditionally we think that ideas are a fluffy kind of in the shower, just woke up in the middle of the night kind of thing where, you know, this new idea is born. And what it feels like is that you've said, hey, all of those people that are thinkers all of this fluffy piece, there is a process to this and we've put that in place. And you've sort of almost backfilled that sort of, you know, magical place where where ideas show up into a, no, actually, when they wake up in the middle of the night, there's a whole other piece that's happening before they have that wake up <laughs> moment. Is, am I right in saying that? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And and one of the reasons this is this is neuroscience. And I kind of geeked out on this when I was doing my research about the neuroscience part of all of this, is that we tend to spend our days with a narrow focus on our screens, on our phone, on things right in front of us. But when we give our mind time and space to relax, sleep, that really fluid space between wakefulness and sleep or a shower because water is known to, to generate the same kind of feeling and energy with us too. It begins to essentially broaden our scope. So it would be the same visual equivalent of going from looking at your computer screen to looking out in a wide landscape at the horizon. All of a sudden, everything is broader. There's so many more things to um, take in and there's less of a very small specific focus. And so when we wake up in the middle of the night, it's because we've given our brain time to rest 
and release that tension and focus on one specific thing. And it's a natural pattern finder, dot connector. If we talk about creative thinking being about connecting the dots, people who are really prolific at it just understand how to fuel that part up front before they get to the day when they have to generate the ideas. And so if you're constantly nurturing, you know, putting fuel into a system, then you're also going to consistently have output along that way. And so that's why people like that seem like, you know, people who are hard to touch or relate to or things like that. And it's not that they're necessarily different. It's just that they're, they understand that there's something that happens before the moment that you need an idea. And that is something that has a process, a framework, something actionable and tangible that you can do so that by the time you need an idea, you've already fueled it. And those ideas come at a higher volume and a higher quality too. I, I wanted to circle in on the word innovation because I don't know whether it is in, in uh, the States, but definitely in Australia, it's become a bit of a buzzword. It's a bit like sustainability or, you know, that, that we, we all want to actually label our company an innovative company. We want to have an innovative culture. And I feel like it's something that's, I, I, I guess, shoot, they're trying to shoehorn their company into the the um, into something that they're really not or they haven't really created um, organically. I, I think a really great place to start, considering it's on the the front cover of the book, is to define what successful innovation is. I guess at an organisational level, and do you find this being misused as a word out there as much as I do? I actually do. And I think if you ask 20 different people to define the word innovation, you'd get at least 40 different definitions because it's not like accounting or law or, you know, chemistry. There is no finite definition that we can all agree on. One of the reasons that I called my book Rethink Innovation and it's R-E colon Think Innovation is because I want to challenge people to think differently about how they define it to start with. And it comes from the old school in uh, business when they had paper memos. And on these paper memos, it said to colon, who was the memo to, from colon, who is it from? And then RE colon, what is this memo regarding? So in a way it's a play on word about regarding the way we think about innovation. And we typically think of innovation as product innovation, it's an innovation group or a research and development group. You mentioned engineers. I actually started out studying electrical engineering for two years in university and ended up with a history major and I've worked in marketing and now innovation. So you can see there's a lot of things that, that overlap there. But I think where most companies struggle is because they, don't, they either don't have a clear definition of innovation or they have a de definition that excludes 90% of their employee population. And innovation is one of those things that you have to show that you're innovative. You can't tell people you're innovative. I can't tell you how many marketing and sales pieces I get from innovative painters, innovative dentists. I'm not sure I want my dentist to be real innovative, you know, innovative optimal, you know, ophthalmologist. You know, it's just like you said, it is such a almost trashed word that it doesn't have a meeting anymore. And so 
I define innovation as the ability to consistently, that's a word that we talked about a few minutes ago, consistently come up with new, great, and reliable ideas. And it's a short definition, but each word has a lot of power behind it. So when we think about a new idea, it's an idea that hasn't necessarily been done before in your industry. So for example, McDonald's got the idea for their layout for their drive-through from the Formula One pit stop. Was it first time ever been done before? No, because it had been done in Formula One racing. But it was the first time that that type of design had been done in the fast food restaurant. So that's an example of a new idea. And a great idea is one that's more subjective. And I know you said you had Sam Tatum from Ogilvy on, right? Yeah. yeah. And so David Ogilvy, the father of how we think of all, a lot of these things, said a great idea is one that kind of makes you envious and jealous that you didn't come up with it yourself you know, kind of gives you the tingle on the back of your neck and makes the hair stand up on your arm. And, and, but it's, it's more subjective. I'll, I'll be honest about that. And then a reliable idea is one that has a bottom line financial impact. So many ideas may have one of those characteristics, sometimes even two, but I believe to be truly innovative, you have to have an idea that has all three and then the ability to consistently come up with those on a regular basis is what makes a person or a team or a company truly innovative. And I think it is being misused in organizations because they're limiting the focus of where innovation can lie. And one of the interesting statistics, <clears throat> excuse me, I found in my research is that 90% of innovation happens outside of a traditional innovation or research and development group. So if we define it in that way, yet 90% of it happens elsewhere, we really have a messed up perception of what innovation is, where it happens and who's involved. We're gonna dive into a little bit later just in regards to roles and um, how your team should show up in this space around creating great ideas. But I, I wanted to just touch on the, that cultural piece around What's the decision an organization needs to make to set up the environment correctly rather than just saying, you know, team meeting, we're all going to be innovative, um, uh, to set up the space for this process, which we'll lay out in a second, to, to happen organically? I think one of the things to keep in mind is um, how is feedback handled? Because there's a lot of times when employees team members want to share an idea, but every time they do, they get what's called the gladiator effect. They either get the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And the, you know, the idea either lives or dies and not very many of them live. And sometimes it's because it may feel like a threat or a risk to the person, you know, the highest ranking person in that meeting. And so I always say, if you wanna understand whether or not you are creating an environment that's conducive for innovation, ask people this one question. And I learned this from my friend, Michael Brenner. Does my boss support my ideas? And it's really interesting what comes out and it's a very distinctive reflection of a culture hmm. because there's, you know, do, do they support my ideas? It, it could be a, a wild across the board, yes. And if it's not, it could be because the boss, again, is scared or feels that idea is too risky, so there's no support, 
or the boss thinks it's a great idea and somehow that becomes the boss's ideas not the employee's ideas which i know isn't unusual either or just it's a yeah that sounds good but you know i know we ask for ideas but we're not really going to do anything with them anyway and i think that's the biggest missed opportunity within a culture is believing that innovation is just for a small select group of people rather than making sure that people understand it's a mindset and it's really something that's everybody's business i love the the piece around um i hadn't really sort of thought of that but that the boss supporting my ideas even when they're good ideas are they supporting them as my ideas or are they supporting them as taking them as as theirs which is a i think a really interesting lens to look through there okay i might be jumping the gun here but i i was as we sort of stepped into the process here and i'd love to sort of put a flag (laughs) in the ground here as far as this episode is concerned this is we're going to start to now unpack how these consistently innovative ideas can be created the first step, which I just loved, was the step of observation or to observe. And I think we, we were chatting before we hit record today. I have some past experience in, um, and not very good, I have to admit, but in stand-up comedy, doing putting myself out there in, in stand-up. And what they sort of say that, you know, 70% of the job is just allowing yourself to be open to observing and creating a way in which you can record that observation and you mentioned before there's a bit of neuroscience around this as well around creating that open space can you talk to us about the importance of putting those kind of observing behaviors in place Absolutely. And I think this was part of the research that I'm just still fascinated with. And if there's a book 11 in me, this is probably where it's headed. And and, uh, you'll hear my voice because I get excited talking about this. And I think one of the things that was so fun was to realize that the most innovative people are also the most observant people. And back to your point about stand-up comedy and comedians, I remember watching a Jerry Seinfeld episode and it was all inside a parking garage and they couldn't remember where they parked the car. Now you think about needing to make up a half an hour, I mean, I don't know, 20 minutes with commercials, I don't remember what what the actual length was, but about that kind of an episode, you have to really, really dig in and look and observe the details of people's behavior and what we do. And I think that's one of the really fun things about comedy is that it takes something really, really small and it unpacks it and it shows us who we are through humor, through humor. And so when we think about that from the from the point of view of innovation, how do we start to look at something we take for granted every single day as an opportunity to inspire and fuel and nurture what we do before we get to that brainstorm session or that idea session, you know, the, the reason those ideas pop into our head. And I think that's, that's been a lot of fun for me is to practice the skill of observation. And I have notebooks scattered around my office that are, you know, partially filled a couple of lines here and there fully filled that I take with me, whether it's just across the street to the coffee shop or when I travel someplace and I'm, lucky to have traveled in so many places in the world. And I will sit like airports are one of my favorite places to sit and people watch. And I write 
everything down that I can see from what people are wearing. How, do they hold hands? Do they walk by themselves? Do they listen to music and, you know, to the food, to the signage? And it's easy to start with our visual things because as humans, we are, gen I think something like 65% of the world's population is visual first. But then you close your eyes and what do you hear? And what do you smell? And, you know, what do you taste? Lots of different environments have a taste, even if it's not food right in front of you. And what do you feel the surface you're standing on or sitting on and, and all those details. And those are things we don't often take time to stop and really, really pay attention to and almost ask ourselves, why are these things the way they are? And that's really a beautiful space to be in. And I know probably nature is my second favorite because I think nature has so many lessons for us. And you, th you think about a, an organization that's able to adapt and thrive as much as possible under varying circumstances, that's, that's probably nature. So that's the first step is to really understand how much we close our visual perception and in doing so, we close off our opportunity to be inspired because we just don't, we just don't pay attention to the world that's right in front of us. Mm. I, 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 I wanted to, I guess, uh, from a tactical perspective, how do you recommend that people record these moments because i feel and I, I i pause there because of the fact that i know that that feels we're getting straight into an execution kind of mindset a little bit here but i know and going back to a jerry seinfeld episode i know that i think there's an episode of jerry seinfeld where, or of seinfeld where he wakes up in the middle of the night and has a, just the funniest joke and writes it down but then can't read it in the morning you know um, <laughs> um can you can you tell us what you recommend as the best way to record these observational moments and how much of it do we record do we record everything or is it do you do it in a keyword kind of way how, how do you go about it for me i'm i'm very analog and i'm very much a pen on paper kind of person there is research that shows when you write something versus type it or speak it it's going to stick with your memory for um, much deeper and for a much longer period of time. They noticed this in, in university studies with students who are more successful on exams. They actually physically write their notes. And there's a connection that happens but with your brain between you hear it or you observe it, you process it, then you write it down. So you use your auditory, you know, your hearing, you've thought about it. Now you're watching, you're using your sight to watch your hand kinesthetic actually write it down. So that's three of your five sentences, right? Senses right there. And, you know, a, you know, a, a I guess you wouldn't taste it and you wouldn't smell it unless you use uh, scented ink or something like that. But, you know, those are all things that, that reinforce the memory of it. And so, it, again, it creates that emotional experience that helps you remember these things. I'll be honest, sometimes as I get going, if I'm walking or running and ideas come into my head, I'm not carrying a notebook and a pen with me and I'm not going to sit down and write them. So I have my phone and I use the uh, rev.com app and I just start speaking into it. But I always make sure to go back and transcribe it and maybe I print it and put it in my notebook, but I capture it in a written form 
that's in a consistent place where I know I can always go to look for these things. The, the reason that I don't suggest people type it out or just always audio record it is because I think those are harder to go back to and find. And then again, it is back to how does your mind connect with what you do and what's the experience that you create just simply through the capture of what you observe. Mm, amazing. I, I could go for hours on that particular topic just as sort of you know journaling practices how you go about that I, I just I just love that piece because I think that and I, I'd also recommend to listeners to not necessarily go straight into researching something via the internet because I, I based on what you've said earlier there Carla like that narrows your focus it doesn't allow you to see outwardly and you're also probably reading somebody else's narrative there too, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think as marketers, we know the more we consume, the more we're fed up of, we're more, we're served up of the exact same thing of, of what we've been given or, or, you know, clicked in and engaged with. And I, it's, it's this ability to source experiences or content that's very different from our norm that also helps fuel that observation. It was interesting. I was reading an article about how Jeff Hoffman, the man who started Priceline.com, where he got the inspiration for Priceline.com, you know, a billion dollar company. Have you heard this story? No, no. From a brown banana. Now, had he like, he, I mean, he had been spending time looking, you know, researching and doing all the due diligence about how to start a type of company he was looking at doing. But just by simple observation, he happened to notice that brown bananas were sold at a discount compared to yellow or green bananas because they have a shorter life shelf or shelf life, right? They're, they're going to be done with a lot sooner than a yellow or a green banana. <clears throat> that got him thinking as he was looking for a business with a new business model, what else might be a brown banana business? What else is an industry that may be looking to sell inventory at even a lesser price, maybe not necessarily a loss, but you know, a lesser price so they get some money rather than nothing. And that's what inspired him to reach out to Delta Airlines and say, hey, I've got this wild idea. I know you have seats on your airplane that don't always get sold. Would you be interested in exploring the potential of selling those to me at a discount so you would get some money rather than no money? It's the brown banana business model, right? Mm. Mm. But had he only been focusing on you know the business, due diligence and everything like that and not taken time to be observant on the most simple of things in his day-to-day -day life that are right in front of him, Think of what we wouldn't have now without Priceline. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Let's dive into the other steps here around how we can not only come up with these consistently great ideas, but also then successfully, I guess, execute on them to make an impact. Absolutely. So as we've talked, observe is the first step of the five-step process. And the second step is taking what you've observed and distilling them into patterns. And there doesn't have to be any rhyme or reason around what a pattern is. It's just, interestingly, your brain naturally finds patterns. And when you relax and you 
give it a little space. Sometimes those patterns can be pretty funny and entertaining. You know, um, when I went through the exercise of showing people how this process works in my book, one of the patterns that I came up with was just icky things. I had been at a coffee shop and some of the icky things I saw was trash on the floor. I could smell a poopy diaper. I saw somebody, you know, chewing their fingernails. And so it's, and I can talk about how that goes through the process, but it could be icky things. It could be things of comfort, like in a coffee shop, it could be the smell, it could be the comfy, cushy chairs, it could be the books, things like that. And our brain naturally, like genetically does step one and two, if we just allow it. I mean, the reason Jay, you and I are here is because we've survived all the things our ancestors had to, to be here. So they observed the world around them every day when they woke up. Is it safe? Is it dangerous? Is it going to be stormy? Is the weather going to be warm? How will I find food? And then distilled those into patterns. <clears throat> you know, is it, is it, um, does the sunshine and the green grass mean that it's going to be a good day to harvest some food? So those kind of patterns. And then that takes us into step three of the process is how do we start to relate those patterns that we see into the work that we're trying to do? And this actually is the step that I've found makes all the difference in the world between someone who is successful with innovation and their ideas and someone who struggles or their idea comes out looking like a copy and paste or just a rehash of something else that's already been done. Because it's not about observing what's been done something else, someplace else, and just purely overlaying that into your own situation. It's about relating it into what your company does, your company's culture, the goals and objectives that your team, your marketing team needs to hit. And now how do you relate these patterns that you've seen into your world? And then when you do these first three steps, now when we get to step four, which is generate, generate the ideas, you've now nurtured and fueled and created this ripe soil for the brainstorming process that we usually think of as people coming together in, in uh, conference rooms with buzzing fluorescent lights and oatmeal colored you know, walls and decor and things. They're not really stimulating for generating ideas, but now you've brought outside inspiration into your world in a way that relates and has context. So now you can start to ask yourself, okay, if we need a campaign that will help us increase customer retention by 10% over the next six months, what are we seeing in these patterns that we can relate that will help us generate these ideas? And then step five is pitch. And the beauty about this process is that by the time you get to step five, the pitch, you've already done the work because a pitch is purely telling the story of the journey of your idea. So when you pitch your idea, you go back and you talk about what is it that you observed and what was the situation? What patterns did you see? How do those patterns relate into the work that you're trying to do? How did that inspire the idea that you generated? And now here's how it can be executed. And I think for a lot of people, they don't realize that even if they get to that idea generation part and they have a great idea, a bad pitch can kill even the best of ideas. Mm. I, I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, being the Remarkable Project, there's this piece around a lot of the best ideas have built baked into them the ability for them to be shared and spoken about by in a, in a simple way 
Um, and, and I wonder, going through those steps, whether there's a piece there that you go, uh, and I feel like potentially at the relate stage, potentially also at the pitch stage, where storytelling comes into the mix, there's a, a potentially, but uh, the simplicity and experience piece allows people to then share it. Have you got any thoughts on um, the shareability of these ideas? Absolutely, because one of the reasons a person will hear no when they share an idea, that thumbs down version gladiator. of gladiator yeah. effect, yeah. yeah, exactly, is because people think it's risky. And, you know, how often have we essentially been told, prove to me that this new idea can work and then we will do it? Well, that <laughs> defeats the whole purpose of trying something new, right? But I think that ability to show here's how it worked in this way in this environment, these are the patterns behind what made it work, not the actual things, but the patterns of behavior. And we can now relate that into our work. I think building that bridge from what they observed, what a person observes into their own world helps give it context and helps people understand why this idea can work. And that makes it easier for them to tell the story, to share the idea. When you think about the ALS ice bucket challenge, an incredibly shareable idea, right? I mean, that was, that was one of the key things that was a pattern about that campaign is that it was so easy to share in so many different ways that people could pick and choose what was most comfortable for them. And I think that ability to have an idea that has context and can point to something that we feel comfortable saying, I've seen how it worked over there. Maybe not exactly in the same way, but in enough of the same patterns that I see how it can work here. It makes it easier for people to share, but I think it also makes people feel more confident about sharing that idea because they feel in a way more competent in having come up with that idea and they believe that it actually will work. Now, you know, it probably will need some nuances and adjustments and iterations, but that core idea and people feeling good about being the person who can come up and share, share those ideas is pretty powerful. And I think it goes back to that observe piece, creating a culture of observation allows you to iterate and sort of get that kind of feedback on those ideas as, as they, as they um, start to either hit the market or, or even just hit your team. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I know agile is, you know, a popular word in marketing as well. And my husband is an agile scrum master. And one of the things they do as a practice is a retrospective. Okay, what do we observe that we did during this project? What was great? What would we do differently? And every time those observations are made, it makes the team smarter, it makes them trust each other to a greater degree, and it helps them make better decisions going forward, but it has to start with that observation piece. Mm, yep. Now, hearing all of those steps and that layout that you uh, very clearly outlined for us, I'm guessing there are people listening today, and I, I'd love to go back to that lady you were talking about that came up to you at the um i think it was a conference or um whatnot where and she sort of said you know i'm not this kind of person when you take those behaviors i'm guessing that there are certain roles within an organization certain types of personalities that are going to fit certain parts better than others how do you 
start to understand the importance of each of those roles and also other people's roles and how they sort of fit into this whole thing? How do you, how, how have you proposed to unpack that for us? One of the things that I witnessed when I did my research is, is that perception of I am and I am not an innovator or a creative thinker. And a lot of that perception came from a belief in experience or job title or education. And really what I saw in, in many organizations or in smaller companies that didn't have a traditional idea group or person was that it wasn't one job function or role. It was the archetype of a person. And so that sent me down another like sub research path in this book is looking at the different archetypes of how people innovate. So I think a couple that we we would readily identify with of the six that I um, determined, one is the strategist. And I think like Bill Gates, like an iconic strategist who is highly innovative, right? And then you think of a provocateur type of personality and that on the other end of the scale is a Steve Jobs, you know, always pushing, pushing, you know, better ideas, we're pushing the status quo. But there's a lot of play in a range in between those two archetypes and not that there's a range, but I look at them as six pieces of a pie. There's also the psychologist who's really looking at empathy. What's it like to be the customer of our idea? You know, back to my heart in that architecture world, what are the feelings that we're trying to create? There's the culture shaper. Who's that storyteller? And we've seen that so much in marketing this last five, eight years is the rise of the storyteller and understanding what that's like. And then looking at the orchestrator and how do we look at uh, leading fearlessly through all these different times of change. And, and one of the big characteristics of an orchestrator is that they're willing to have these tough conversations early in the process that we see people like kind of side eyeing people, you know, each other in meetings knowing, oh, I know where this is going because I've done this a hundred times. An orchestrator is willing to have that up front and say, all right, every time we get to this point, X happens. Hmm. What are we going to do to change that trajectory? You know, those kind of conversations. And then there's the collaborator and the collaborator really doesn't care so much about getting credit for an idea, but they're looking at how can we build cross-departmental, cross-silo relationships, so that we can make sure that this idea happens. And when I look at innovation within an organization, the ones that I see are successful realize it's these mindsets and approaches of what how people come to the table rather than what's my job title and official role. That's really what helps an organization be a lot more successful. Oh, gosh, we could talk for hours, but I think we've got to start to finish up, Carla. But I wanted to get super practical with you. If I'm a business owner listening today and I want to sort of start to create that culture that creates ideas that are making more impact in, in the world, maybe also in, inside our business, and, and just generally change the way my team thinks about idea creation. What could be three things that I could change today? Three things that I could go away today and and complete that would not only improve the quality of ideas and how it translates 
to, I guess, the impact, but just the success of our organization, the growth of our organization as a whole? There's uh, the three things that I would say. The first thing is it's a challenge that I give when I give um, keynotes or training to everybody. And it's the seven minute challenge. And I encourage people to take seven minutes. I mean, we all have seven minutes. It takes us longer than that just to go through Instagram stories or catch up on Snapchat or whatever. <clears throat> and I won't even mention how much time people spend on TikTok, but seven minutes for seven days, read, watch, engage with something that is completely different from anything else you've ever done. And that exposure to different thinking and experiences in just seven days will shock you how it has jolted you out of your status quo habitual thinking about how things are done. And then bubbling that up to the next level is that every time you have a team meeting, start it with just five minutes, depending on how big your team is, have one, two, three people share. What is one of those outside of your industry experiences that you've had and what did you learn from it? And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to say, and this is how it applies to what I do every day. It can just be things like, wow, I learned from the brown banana business that there's an opportunity to look for other, you know, other situations in which there could be a business model based on something just as simple as what I see when I eat breakfast every day, that kind of thing. And then the, the third thing I touched on a little earlier are these retrospectives is to go back and talk as a team about what do we observe about how we handled this project or this challenge or this campaign or this client, whatever the situation is. Because I think unless we take time to stop and observe our own behavior, we'll never be able to begin to shift our thinking on a consistent basis and see how that shift is one of the most important things that we need to do to change the performance, not only of ourselves and how we show up every day, but how we can contribute and support our team members. And it's ultimately the performance of teams that determines the performance of an organization of any size. So if you're, if you're an agency owner, I think that would be an interesting thing. And, and it can be a little bit of a gut twist of thinking, okay, we're going to ask our client, you know, what did you like about this whole thing? What would you have done different? Because they may tell you some things you don't want to hear, but ultimately at the end of the day, if you think about how do you want to make them feel, I'm assuming you want to make them feel that they can trust you. And that's a pretty powerful experience. I have to say, we've been doing a bit of customer listening stuff with a few clients lately, and it's surprising just how much they learn from that, they, that how much they think they know and how much they're, um, you know, it'd be seven out of 10 that are way off as to what their their customers are saying. And I, I felt also just as far as idea creation and creating that seven minutes, I mean, even this podcast, I know it's quite niche and it's still marketing land, but just the, the, the as you say, that kind of visceral feeling that you feel from just learning something that you just wouldn't have learned by going down the same path is just incredible. Carla, I want to thank you for your time today. It has been amazing. You have stretched my knowledge. You have made me observe bigger than my little box here. If people want to connect with you, purchase your book, or just be part of your community, where do they go? My website is Carla with a C, 
carlajohnson.co. There's no M. I say it's .co for the great state of Colorado where I live. And once you're there, I have 10 years worth of blogs. I have an email newsletter that you can subscribe to that I regularly ask people for their opinion. You know, what would you like to see? What doesn't work? And how can I create more value for you? And um, I'm very active on LinkedIn too. I always love it if people hear me on an episode that they connect with me and, and let me know that's where they heard, heard me. Amazing. My final question, having interviewed and worked along some of the world's leading viral brands and products, how do you build a business that people feel compelled to talk about? I think it's always looking at how can you transplant inspiration from another place into your own work that truly delivers that surprise and delight that people don't expect. Oh, wow. It's almost like you prepared it. I love it. Um, <laughs> it's Guys, there's so much there. And, you know, we have only scratched the surface of this topic. Um, I feel like one of the takeaways for me was this idea of get some practices, even if they're just small daily practices into your world around observing, getting outside your um, Instagram and TikTok stories and allowing yourself to observe things that you wouldn't usually observe. We mentioned nature before. I think being able to use nature as its... Uh, neuroscience the neuroscience around and the cycle the psychological benefits to being in nature just open your mind up making sure you get enough sleep all of these uh, aspects to creating the environments for you being able to observe the world around you i feel like that's a really major part and then going through these steps i love the relate piece being able to relate how this is going to apply back to your business carla thank you so much for your time today Oh, it was a delight to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Until next time, everybody, stay remarkable. <laughs>